episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? How do you think I'm doing today, Jody? I think you're about ready to nerd out like no other. I am, Yes, I am doing really, really well because I am super excited to have Charlie Clauser with us today. So welcome to the podcast, Charlie. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Here. Yeah. I met you briefly, or we all met briefly at NAMM that was just here, and I have to apologize because I probably came off as a complete fucking fanboy here, and uh, I could barely contain myself, so I'm very happy <laughs> that you agreed to be on here, and we can talk nerd a little bit, and gear, and everything Charlie Clauser. Absolutely. If people, for whatever reason, are unfamiliar with your work... Tell us the abridged version of who you are and what you do, Charlie, please. All right. Studied electronic music in college before MIDI was invented. So that meant ARP 2500s and four-track reel-to-reel machines. Worked at a Sam Ash store for like a minute. Got hired out of the Sam Ash store. This would have been 85, 86, by a customer who was scoring the final season of the original CBS TV series, The Equalizer, oh, which fun. Stuart Copeland from the from the police had done the theme and was doing the underscore. This Australian composer who got the gig was in New York and he hired me to sort of run the rig and mix the score. And of course, in those days, pre-digital audio, it was a little Macintosh Plus and a bunch of MIDI modules and an S900 and all that. That brought me out to Los Angeles where through old college friends, I got sucked into Trent Reznor's Vortex Started working with him towards the end of uh, making of the Downward Spiral Nine Inch Nails album and helped with a little bit of synth programming and, a, and kind of assembling the mixes and stuff like that. But it was mostly done by the time I got there. He originally hired me to do sound effects on a music video, the music video for the song Happiness and Slavery, which had this robot chair that tortures and eats a man basically and they needed the sound effects <laughs> of these robot arms straining and struggling as they came out and grabbed this guy's various sensitive body parts we had allocated like two days to do these sound effects and we did it at Trent's studio this was when he was up in the the old Sharon Tate murder house and we had set aside two days to do that work and finished it in about three hours and spent the rest of the time playing video games, as you do. <laughs> then he sort of said, hey, you know, I've got this band that I just recorded their first album and we're not really loving the sounds of the live drums off the floor. Do you by any chance do drum sample replacement work? And by this point, I was already I had had bands. I had had a publishing deal. None, none of it really caught fire but i was already a whiz at samplers and sequencers and in those days it was opcode studio vision he, he said can you replace the the drums on this debut album from this little known florida shock rock act called marilyn manson and he said i gotta leave town he was gonna be gone for like a month and he said yeah you got a month to replace these drum tracks and of course it wound up taking a week and a half and 
we spent the rest of the time playing video games. <laughs> and I kind of never left the, the Nine Inch Nails loop. He kept thinking of more stuff for me to do. And eventually, after uh, maybe another year or so of touring with the band and setting up his portable studio and hotel rooms and stuff, eventually the previous keyboard player, James Woolley, may he rest in peace, he died a couple years ago, had had enough and he was out of there. And so Trent said, well, all right, you're up. And I kind of had to explain to them that I had never played keyboards in front of people before. <laughs> I, was, I had been a drummer and not a really good one, which is why I became a drum programmer. So I basically l- phonetically learned all of the Nine Inch Nails keyboard parts by listening to a, a DAT tape that had uh, of their live shows that had the band on one side and just the keyboards on the other side. And I, they sent me one of their backup Emacs's that had all the sounds in it. And I, you know, sort of like that Filipino guy that sings with Journey or whoever it is, where <laughs> oh, he, he may or may not actually speak English, but he's he learned it phonetically. You know, sure. that's how I figured out all the keyboard parts for Nine Inch Nails. And I toured with the band and worked in the studio in New Orleans programming and getting a couple very, very minor co-writes on some of the songs on the album, The Fragile, and was in the band from 94. To 2001, quit the band, came back to LA. And because I had had that slight background experience in TV scoring, which was a few years, and I got to see how the sausage got made back in the 80s, uh, working with that Australian composer. When I returned to LA, I, I produced an album that I had, that Paige Hamilton from Helmet and I had sort of gotten half written. And I set up shop in LA, we finished that album. Worked on a couple other indie metal, industrial metal type projects that didn't really blow up. And then I get a call from my lawyer, of all people, who said, (laughs) hey, I represent these guys that have this little indie horror movie. And they know all about your music. And they have in their temp score of this horror movie, they've got a bunch. Uh, They don't want orchestral music for their score. They want like hard-edged electronics and industrial music. And they actually have a couple of your remixes little snippets of them in their temp score. You want to give them a call? And so I called these guys up on a Wednesday at 10 in the morning. They said, hey, come on down to our edit suite and take a look at this movie. And that movie was the first movie in the Saw horror movie franchise, which we had no idea was going to become a global juggernaut and last 20 years and 10 movies so far. And... They're filming number 11 as we speak. Are you doing the music of this too? Oh, of course. I've done the score for all 10 movies, but the first Saw movie was the first feature film that I was completely in the driver's seat all by myself and actually did that score while Paige Hamilton was tracking vocals on my other rig in the other room. So it was a bolt from the blue. Shortly thereafter, I also began scoring for TV series, and I've done 108 episodes of a series on NBC called Las Vegas, 112 or so episodes of a series called Numbers that was on CBS, and uh, three or four seasons of other assorted hour-long dramatic primetime TV series, and maybe a dozen or so other features besides the Saw stuff. And that's that's enough. <laughs> that's a that's lot. enough. That's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah that, that's kind of crazy. I mean, most people, I'm putting words in people's mouths here, but I think <laughs> if you're like me, 
a lot of people will probably know you from probably the Nine Inch Nails camp. Right. What I would like to do, if you're okay with that, I would sort of like to focus on a little bit more of your scoring career sure. today sure. And, and how we kind of do that. I had a couple of notes here I wrote down for myself that I said, I got to make sure I ask this. Because when get a chance to talk to somebody like yourself, so much of the conversation seems to be about the gear. What kind of gear are you using? What samplers <laughs> are you using? What, what software? Blah, blah, blah. But the one thing that nobody ever seems to ask is when you get approached to do, let's say that, you know, the first time you were approached to do Saw, mm -hmm. how do you approach that sort of like mentally or psychologically? Do you create a theme for yourself? How do you get going? Because to me, the gear is sort of secondary, right? It's it's yeah. you and your ear and your approach that they want, right? Yeah, so, and Cliff Martinez, uh, the film composer and one of the early drummers in Red Hot Chili Peppers, if you can believe it, he scored feature films like on a laptop in a hotel room in Thailand with a pair of $90 Bluetooth speakers. So the gear is... It, we all love gear and we all love to have a lot of it, but that's not the driving factor. So, because right. I never went to film scoring school. I didn't learn orchestration and all of the knowledge that I have about how to approach a score, both musically and workflow slash technologically wise, came from just doing it or sitting at the right hand of someone who's doing it. But one important kind of procedural musical lesson that I learned from James Wan, who created the Saw franchise and directed the first one, and also directed, you know, now he's doing like Aquaman and giant <laughs> movies. But I scored a couple of other movies for him shortly after the first Saw film, and one of them that was called Dead Silence wanted to be very thematic musically, and the score wanted to revolve around a certain piece of music. His advice and lesson to me was to go directly to the end of the movie where the most complex and elaborate and the fullest expression of this piece of music would occur and to work on that first and then to use that musical data, whatever those keyboard parts might have been and so on, to inform the content of the rest of the score leading up to it so that it was as though we were tiptoeing around this musical theme this motif and not fully revealing it until the final the home run ending reveal montage sequence and that actually was incredibly useful advice it's probably what you learn in like the first week in film scoring school but i had never had that lesson and it actually worked incredibly well. This was like the second movie that I ever scored. So I went to the end of the film and wrote this elaborate piece that had this sort of broken music box theme and then some chugging staccato strings behind it. And it built to a frantic climax. But I used the musical data f that was contained in that final piece of music to inform what my fingers were going to do earlier on in the film. So there would be cues that might just be floaty, sort of ambient-ish sounds with no defined theme, but the notes and the content and the chords were all extracted or were referring to this final piece of music. So that the whole arc of the film felt like we were 
hinting at this theme and gradually revealing little fragments of it and then finally unleashing the beast as we get towards the end. And that kind of approach, fortunately, this happened on my second movie, not on my 20th movie, because (laughs) that's kind of the right way, or at least it may not be the right way, but to have a consciousness of doing of proceeding in that fashion has been really helpful. It doesn't always work. And sometimes you don't want to reveal that theme or those motifs and you want to stay away from them. So it's more of a sucker punch when you get there, but having some knowledge and being able to zoom out and view the entire kind of arc of a score, not just in size and diameter and density and intensity, but also in terms of what the what the freaking notes and chords are <laughs> and being able to map that out mentally or in the marker track and logic or in on a piece of paper however you do it but creating some roadmap of the arc in a very abstract sense and then coloring that in you know I'm, i use analogies a lot to describe this abstract thing that we sure. do mm-hmm. i look at it as though it's almost like a coloring book where the first step is to draw the outline, the line drawing of the clown blowing up a balloon. And then later you only have to decide what color his shoes are and should his hair be orange or green. So getting that outline at least crudely sketched out in some fashion, even if it's just a thought and not, you've never written it down and you didn't record anything and you didn't make a marker track in logic or whatever, just to have that sort of having been thought about right off the bat so that then as you proceed through the thing, you're not just wandering around on the endless plains of featureless white desert wondering which way is north, (laughs) you know? Right. You mentioned logic a couple of times there in that long thing. Oh, yeah. Is that your primary writing and production DAW? Absolutely. I've been in logic since 92 or 94. Whenever it was that Gibson bought Opcode and scuttled the ship that was Studio Vision, Mm. then I switched to logic and that's been my main engine ever since. Okay. So uh, to follow up on that question, back in the day when I was choosing a DAW, I ended up going with logic myself and that was right around that same exact time period. One of the things that I had to consider, and I don't know if this was something you needed to consider at the time, was digital performer. Yeah. That was supposedly what most film guys and TV guys were using because of its ability to add and subtract from the timeline in a very easy manner that worked with scenes. So the question I guess I have is, Logic still doesn't do this to this day, but do you lay out an entire movie in one Logic session or do you have multiple sessions for all the scenes yeah which one one logic file for the whole movie oh my god no oh my god (laughs) right that's the question that's why i wanted to ask it for i did use performer on when we were doing the equalizer tv series with the australian composer and some other tv movies back in the 80s we used performer it was Uh only midi then there was no audio capability it did and still does have the most sophisticated set of tools for tempo calculation and hit point calculation and manipulating your tempo map to automatically fit 
eight bars between the gunshot and the door slam or whatever. Right. And we also used two other programs that actually were made by DigiDesign, which is now Avid, which have kind of become redundant. But one was called QSheet, and that was a glorified database program that would let you build your list of cues as found on the QSheet documents that we all use. It had some time code and tempo calculation features. And there was another program called Q, just the letter Q. Uh And that had very sophisticated tempo and time calculation functions. And it could do things like many of the things that you would do in Performer, but then it could export a MIDI file that contained the tempo map that was the result of these elaborate calculations. So we would kind of bounce between these tools. Performer kind of incorporates for the most part, everything that Q and QSheet and this other very obscure program called Oracle, which was basically a very sophisticated click track generator, mostly used on scoring stages by when recording actual orchestras. Performer is still like the king of those features. And Performer and Studio Vision also had the ability to have multiple cues as separate sequences within a master file. In Performer, they're called chunks. In Studio Vision, they were called subsequences. And that does, if you're in either of those programs, you could have a single project file, which would contain 26 or 99 or however many individual subsequences, each of which would be a finished piece of music. And then all of them would share the same plugins and instrument settings and so on. I don't do it that way. Mm-hmm. I make each cue in a film is a separate logic project for me so that I can make a total train wreck in one without ruining <laughs> all the rest of them. Right. <laughs> Part of the reason I don't need those fancy schmancy time and tempo calculation features is because after you've done it enough times with those software assistant tools... Then you, after, you know, you've done a thousand, I mean, you've done 8,000 literally cues for film and TV. After a while, you see what those advanced tools are doing. And eventually you just figure, uh, you know what, just open the tempo list editor in Logic and uh, I'll just do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do get very detailed with my tempo and time signature mapping so that I can do things like have it be exactly 32 bars from the gunshot to the door slam and it is getting faster gradually we're starting at 108 bpm and by the time we get to the end it's 144 or whatever Mm -hmm. and it's it looks crude as hell when i'm doing it because i'm just sitting there with the logic tempo list editor and i'm just typing in and entering tempo changes manually and building this list just based on some experimentation and just knowing how those tricky software assistants would, I knew what they were doing, so I can just do it. I do spend a, a good bit of time at the beginning of every project just listening to a click track from Logic against picture and seeing how that rhythm falls against the cuts and the actions. Because I do want it to, the finished product to feel as though the picture editor and the actors are all dancing to the beat, quote of course, unquote. Of and, course. 
that every little motion on screen, whether it's the actor's eyebrow or the gun being pulled out or whatever it might be, all those things, I want them to feel on beat-ish or at least... It's easy for me sometimes to watch something as simple as a click against picture and to say, no, that's not the right tempo because it feels that things aren't in sync visually versus clickually or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I do spend a good bit of time at the beginning of a process just with the tempo list in Logic open, experimenting, typing things in. I might find a tempo that feels comfy, but it winds up being 31 bars and three beats between the gunshot and the door slam. And I, well, that's not going to work. So then I'll fiddle with the tempos, <laughs> maybe add a rising tempo, getting faster towards the end until I achieve something that feels symmetrical and intentional. And it can be a bit of an experiment and trial and error, but after a while, it does get easier. <laughs> so when you're doing that, that's interesting, the, the process there and how you get like really anal with, with the timing. Let's say this completely hypothetical situation that you mentioned that you're you're three beats over or whatever right how likely are you to then just work with the tempo overall as opposed to inserting a bar of, of three somewhere or a bar of five to kind of make up for those extra three beats right but you know would you would you prefer to keep it sort of well, you said symmetrical. Four, four That's why a similar question that I'm thinking yeah. of is that you say symmetrical, and most people might instantaneously think 4-4, four, four, and I'm assuming that's what you mean by that. Well, no, I mean symmetrical in terms of it not being 13 and a half bars for a given <laughs> right. section, you know, right. because I never want it to sound like a musical phrase was unfinished or was interrupted by a change in the music that was necessitated by what the picture's doing. Mm -hmm. However, that's not a 100% rule because sometimes you do want it to sound like the music is just cruising along and then it gets horribly interrupted by some brutal event. Fine. But as a general rule of thumb, I'm always looking for a way to have a symmetrical number of bars and a natural musical phrase fitting correctly into the time that it is allowed. And even when I'm doing sort of cues that have no rhythm to them, there's no pulse, there's no drums, it's just some floaty ambient murk, I still map the tempos out with that in mind so that even if it's just going to be, you know, a minute and a half of floating swirling murk and there's no rhythmic events anywhere, no rhythmic phrases anywhere, I still at least make a cursory effort to have Logic's tempo and its grid match the timing of the scene as perfectly as it would had I been using drums. And that just makes it so much easier to color in the clown's nose in the coloring <laughs> book because even if I'm doing floaty stuff, there might be some elements, like some root note that's changing every two bars. And I don't want to be two and three quarters bars when we get to the end of that scene. So I will take great care to map things out in that fashion in order to give me a wireframe view of a cue. Again, with the analogies, here we go. It's like if you're framing up the two by fours for a house before you're slapping the drywall on, you want them at exactly 18 inch spacing and you don't want that last one to be like, 
six inches or sure. 40 inches from the end. So even when a queue doesn't need a grid, I try to allow for the possibility that there could be one by laying out the tempos and so forth in that manner. So do you feel like you have a little bit of OCD with this? Because I do very similar in that <laughs> regard. And it, it feels, oh, yeah. I, while I wouldn't say that I have OCD, that kind of sounds like OCD to me. I mean, it's partly that it's I've gotten so fast with the Logic's tempo map, and I just have some kind of instinct about in some cue in some cues. It's obvious you don't want it to be speeding up into a frenzy towards the end, sure. or you you know that you want some gentle flowing tempo. And I don't always use four four. I love using odd time signatures and even weird mixed time signatures where you know you might have like the nine inch nails march of the pigs time signature three bars of seven eight one bar of four four and then that whole chunk repeats and so i i love doing stuff like that but it's still easy for me to think in terms of that's still a grid it's a weird lopsided lumpy grid but it's still a grid and i do you know to answer that earlier the actual question i do Many times insert just a bar of 5.8 or a bar of 3.8 or something, but usually in some gap where we've got some rhythmic thing that's speeding up, speeding up, and then it slams and we have a little gap and a hold and we're about to drop back in with the rhythm and I want both sides of that hole to line up perfectly, but what's in that hole might be a bar of 9.8 or some lopsided thing that if a rhythm was continuing through it, it would be like, whoa, it would throw everything off. But <laughs> since it's just some hole that has some screeching ambient murk shredding across that gap, nobody in the audience is counting time as that goes past. So I do use inserting weird bars and one bar of a weird tempo just to get the boundaries on either side of that moment to line up perfectly to picture. Right. I do that a lot. When you get a film or a scene or a TV show, generally speaking, most films will have some sort of thing temped in there. And you mentioned that when oh, yeah. the Saw guys had got a hold of your lawyer and your lawyer turned around to you. Mm-hmm. How often now that you have a much bigger name, so to speak, do you get something with something already temped in that was not done by you? And how influential is that? Or do you turn that all off and just go with your own flow? I get very nervous if a film does not have a temp score and I cannot think of a single project where there wasn't some form of temp music in place already now there may it may not have been complete there may have been scenes with no temp music and they say oh we really need something here that, that's fine mm-hmm. some composers say oh the first thing I do is turn I don't even want to hear the temp scores <laughs> yeah okay okay yeah right First of all, not sure if I really believe that entirely, but the reason I like a temp score is because it shows that someone has spent some time thinking about the problem. Right. And the problem is we got no freaking music on this movie. So somebody has spent some time at least addressing the issue. They may have failed miserably and they may say this temp is entirely wrong except this one 30 second piece we snipped out of the born identity that has this cool little groove <laughs> right. or whatever, but at least they've tried it. Now on TV stuff, I always have a music editor who's receiving the work that I do and inserting it into this week's show. And 
those music editors, many of them, also in film, many of them are hired not just to assemble the score, the finished score as it comes in from the composer, but they're also often hired to build the temp score from their massive library of every Born Identity and Jurassic Park. And most of these music editors have enormous and well-categorized and organized and keyword searchable in sound minor software libraries of scores so that when they are called upon to assemble a temp score, they're not just fishing around on YouTube looking for cool music. Right. That's a whole science that sometimes it's a music supervisor working in concert with the music editor. But in many cases, the music editor is the go-to guy because he's collected every score he's ever worked on. So he's got all those. Mm -hmm. Plus, he's got all the stuff from all his music editor buddies. And I'm frequently contacted by music editors who say, hey, I'm temping this film and we'd love to have the complete score for Saw 9 or whatever the heck. And what was on that score album release doesn't have all the cues. Can you send us the full batch? And I'm quite happy to just throw it to them because the downside might be like, well, now their real composer that they've hired is going to hear all the stuff you did for Saw 9 and he's going to reverse engineer it and that's it. But that becomes or, a whole copyright issue anyway on top of that. Yeah, and, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not worried about that. Sure. The upside might be that they say, oh, wow, we put this stuff in the temp score. It was so good. Well, obviously, we've hired the wrong composer because our guy can't do that kind of stuff. <laughs> Who did this? Right. And that's the theory behind why a composer would send all his scores to a zillion music editors. It hasn't really necessarily been how things work out, but I don't care. They can have the scores Mm -hmm. temp with them. It's fine. I hear you. But you had, if I'm not wrong, a similar situation going on, Charlie, when you were asked to score American Horror Show or American Horror Story, right? That was a unique circular journey where the producers of the show and the showrunner, Ryan Murphy, were they were working on the main title sequence and they wanted it to be like the main title sequence for the David Fincher movie seven, which had these gritty images and sort of torn film effects and that kind of thing. And the music behind the main titles in the movie seven was ostensibly a remix of a nine inch nails song closer. And it was remixed by uh, Peter Christofferson and his cohorts in the band coil But the actual track that's in the movie, that the Coil remix of Closer, contains almost no actual Nine Inch Nails musical data. It just has some little molecules of Trent's vocal that have been processed within an inch of their life. And it's mostly a Coil track. But it had this great, dark, slow, gritty, terrifying feel. So as they're cutting together the visuals for the, the main titles for American Horror Story, with that seven titles in mind the picture editor who was assembling this thing the showrunner said we got to find a piece of music like that nine inch nails track in seven and the picture editor said you know it's funny you mention that because when i was in college i went and saw the movie seven and i came back to my dorm room and i booted up my beige dell pc (laughs) and my copy of cool edit pro and i was so i was so inspired by that coil remix that I made this piece of music inspired by that and it was 
very reminiscent tonally in terms of the type of sounds and the loping kind of slow feel that it had. This picture editor, his name is Cesar Davila Irizarry, he played this piece of music he had done years earlier for Ryan Murphy, the showrunner. And Ryan said, that's great. Let's stick that in and we'll cut the picture to that and then we'll deal with this problem later. Mm. But this will give us the right mood to cut picture to. So they stuck Caesar's piece in there, cut the picture, and Caesar only had like a stereo mix. He didn't have stems. He just had a stereo mix. That's it. And of course, for the real mix session, they would want stems and they, you know, the ability to manipulate individual elements and so on. And also Caesar's original track had a highly illegal sample in it that was a sample of like of a like Brazilian jazz. The, the beginning of this Brazilian jazz song that had this stand-up bass, and he had pitched it way, way down, but it was still like, it was illegal. It, you know, it was going boom, 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 boom. And we couldn't use that. And we couldn't get it out of there because he didn't have stems or anything. So they cut their picture together using his track. And then they said, well, you know, it's funny. This track was done as an ins- inspired by a Nine Inch Nails track. I think the guy from Nine Inch Nails is, do- is scoring for movies. Let's get a hold of him. They got a hold of me. <laughs> I heard what Caesar had done, loved it. And they said, we want to capture this vibe and this feel, but with a new piece of music from scratch. Okay. I did, I think, three different attempts, no, four different passes at writing a complete from scratch piece of music that embodied the spirit, but not the actual musical data or the samples or anything from Caesar's original track. And the showrunner, as often happens, was in love with the temp. And he kept, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was getting, I was parking my car right in that parking spot. You know, I was about to get a ticket, but to be fair, you know, Ryan, he's the man, he's the showrunner, and it's his baby. And he said, there's something charming about the stumbling nature of this original track. And he kept going back to Caesar's original track. And I finally said, you know what? Okay. I can get a lot closer. If we, if we're really trying to get close, I can get a lot closer So I basically used audio forensic technology to extract what portions, what molecules of audio I could from Caesar's original stereo mix file. Did not use that illegal bass thing. The bass sort of boom, boom, boom that's in the, the actual theme was something new that I came up with that had the same vibe but wasn't the same notes and was not an illegal sample but i was able to extract like this little dripping water sound and these those sort of chainsaw like noise blasts and a couple of other really choice chunks of audio that were i hoped what the showrunner ryan murphy had been in love with the final result was this weird hodgepodge of new elements that i created to try to evoke what caesar had done plus a couple of actual filtered and hued samples from what Caesar had done. And in the end, it sounds very close to Caesar's original dorm room demo. And because the final result originated from an idea he had had, we shared co-writing on the thing 50-50. Because nice. it, even though they hired me to do it, and I did put in like way too much time trying to get close, in the end, it was based on a track of his. Yeah. So... And by this point, he was doing, he was a video producer. He wasn't pursuing music as a life goal at that point. So it was kind of a 
a funny surprise for him because he's like, who knew this track I did in my dorm room on my beige Dell desktop <laughs> in 97 or whatever would, would come back to bite me 20 years later. But that was the strange circular journey of American Horror Story main titles. Interesting in, in how you describe all that, aside from being brought something very much that the showrunner was entirely in love with. When you're given yeah. a bit more of a blank slate, how do you go about choosing whether to do something more orchestral or more organic or, as you say, murk and noise? You know, that's that's something that I just randomly somehow have an instinct for. And I've had this conversation with a, a good friend of mine who I've known for 35 years who was working with me on some of the TV stuff. He would sort of help to repurpose old cues and fit them to this week's episode, that sort of thing. And at one point, or this was 15, 20 years ago, and I said, he was a super talented musician, could play five instruments, just had golden ears on the mix and on the preamp selection and all that. And he also works as a session player on a lot of like really high-end scores with composers like Thomas Newman. He produced a bunch of, of Harold Budd records. And so he's like an art rocker at the highest level and expert sound designer. And I, I had this conversation with him where I said, you know, man, I can totally teach you whatever there is that's missing in your skill set. I could teach you in a couple of months and you could drive. You could get scoring gigs of your own. And he said, you know what? I don't even want to. He, said, he was like, I, first of all, I just want to, I don't want to drive the car and have to keep my eyes on the road. I just want to sit in the passenger seat. Maybe I can roll the window down, put my feet out the window. I can look at the scenery. <laughs> you know, he's like, I prefer not being in the driver's seat. And here I am trying to encourage him. Like, I can show you how to drive stick, mm, you know? Right. He didn't want that. And But in that conversation, he said, you know, because I just don't have the same instinct. I thought everybody just thought this way, that... Everybody could look at a scene in a movie and think, oh, I know what this needs. And he said, I don't know how you do it because I look at a scene and I don't have an instantaneous reaction to either the temp music is terrible and here's why, or there's no temp music, but here's what it should be. And I kind of, you know, I was an idiot. I thought everybody just naturally <laughs> thought that way. As it turns out, I somehow, for some reason, have that ability or instinct or whatever. And I also associate certain classes and types of sounds with certain situations for which they are appropriate or inappropriate. And an example would be certain sort of movie drums, like the big epic reverby tycos and that sort of thing. To me, those always sound like they are outdoors. Yep. Like it sounds like the riders of Rohan coming over the hill to, to the rescue. <laughs> or it sounds like not just big in terms of the scope of the story they match with, but also big in terms of the space. So like if we're in a Saw movie and we're in some dank underground bathroom or something, <laughs> the, you can't have sounds that sound like the Riders of Rohan coming over there. You can't have big outdoorsy sounds. Now that's just one tiny example, but extend that train of thought down to the molecular level where every I think of every sound in those kind of contextual terms and if I'm sh flipping through sounds just trying to decide what the smorgasbord will be for a given cue a lot of times you says no 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 not that one no 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 oh wait maybe and 
that first initial reaction doesn't come from what chord I'm playing or what the melody is. It's what the character of the sound is. And does it sound like it's of a place with what we're seeing on the screen? Not to say that, oh, that piano should sound like it's occurring in the room that is pictured on the screen, mm -hmm. but in a more slightly more abstract sense, do these sounds feel homogenous with the people and the places and the level of activity and action and the amount of light coming through the window, all those things that I see on the screen, I kind of start to equate various characteristics just of the raw sound itself, playing middle C on the keyboard. And that is how I kind of reduce the available choices and options and arrive at a, a set of sounds that feel like an ensemble that fits what I'm looking at on the screen. What do you and think? Once that's done, then it's then it's easy. Mm. You know? <laughs> Where do you think that comes from, Charlie? Were you a big movie buff? Were you just Always. sort of just absorbed all of these emotions so. and, and, and sounds, perhaps? I mean, I watch way too many movies. Like I've seen, I've seen every freaking good movie and every terrible movie. <laughs> and I watch, and some some movies I watch, literally hundreds of times mm -hmm. like movies like michael clayton i've watched that movie so many times my wife is it drives her crazy because mm. if it comes on on hbo i'm like oh michael clayton gotta watch it oh michael clayton. <laughs> gotta watch it she's like you know this movie by heart you can recite every line that the actors are saying i'm like it doesn't matter it's perfect <laughs> so but i so and i i do react i am gullible in terms of I can be fooled by expert work in a movie, even if there are glaring plot holes. An example would be that movie The Game by David Fincher with mm. Michael Douglas. Oh, that's a great I was reading, that's a fun movie. It's a great movie. Awesome movie. And I remember I was reading some Reddit thread arguing about, you know, as they do, arguing about movies. And they're like, all oh, these plot holes, that movie's so unbelievable. This would never happen. And here's why. And they ran down this list of, you know, and I'm, and I'm reading this list of complaints about that movie, The Game, and I'm thinking, well, I didn't notice any of that. You're right. It's the, All of these are valid points, and I didn't notice any of that. And then I started thinking to myself, why didn't I catch any of that? I've seen that movie dozens of times. And it was because the cinematography was so good and so fit the story and the, the darkness and the color timing and just Fincher's directing. All these things combined to create an engrossing world that I loved and that to the point where I didn't notice glaring plot holes or whatever. Sure. Um, and so that and that ability to suspend my disbelief to ex extraordinary levels has let me really appreciate some movie scores and, and try to understand why I think I like it so much and why they work so mm -hmm. well and there's a great movie called the international which was clive owen and naomi watts oh yeah and it was a you know an international banking interpol thriller and and, and the score was done by reinhold heil and johnny Klimek and the director tom tickward the three of them collaborated on the score reinhold and johnny were first best known for that movie run lola run right which was that that crazy german movie with franca potente who then became a huge star in the born identity movies but i remember watching the international and the choices of the sounds and the density i mean it's a thriller and the score had some of these suspense cues were like nothing but 
a hand muting on a timpani going boom, 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 boom. And then a little mini moog with some ping pong delay going boop, 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 boop. Just super minimal, but exactly fit what we're seeing on the screen and added to the tension, but weren't getting unnecessarily big. Mm -hmm. And moments like that, when I see something that works super well, I try to unravel why I, why do I think that? And a lot of times it comes down to that feeling of correct context. Like the sounds aren't coming from some other, you know, it's not like, Hey, they bolted this music from another movie in here and it seems to work. Okay. You're like, no, <laughs> it's so homogeneously organically fits with what we're seeing on the screen that part of it is the musical content, what the actual notes and chords and melodies and themes are. But part of it is also the choice of sounds and the way they're deployed and making things feel of a piece with what we're seeing on the screen. And that a lot of times is more important than the flowery flute trills, or, <laughs> you know, or elaborate orchestration or whatever. Sure, sure. Yeah. So to take a step back on some of the stuff that you've just said, one of the questions that popped up in my mind that we have talked about on the podcast in the past, is, especially with the history of logic, is creating templates and what mm-hmm. used to be auto loads. When yep. you are creating for a movie or a TV show and you're talking about whittling away to get to a particular type of sound, once you get the sound, are you building a template or are you starting with a template and whittling all that away until you have a new template? Oh, boy. Or template is, is... Blank slate. No, 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 no. Template is life. <laughs> and <laughs> if, I, you know, if, I have a, if I have two months to do a movie score... I'll spend two weeks building a template uh-huh. just for that project. I might start with a template from a previous movie just so I don't have to set up all the stem buses and reverb buses and stuff. But I always go through and pick all new sounds or pick sounds that are appropriate for that project. So I'll just have the movie on loop on the screen. And as I'm spending day after day, scrolling through my bazillion sounds and finding the ones that feel like they're going to be the right kind of fodder to start from. My template currently, I do most of my work in EXS24, Logic Stock Sampler. Uh-huh. And I do have Vienna Ensemble and Contact and Omnisphere and 16 terabytes of $200,000 worth of Spitfire string libraries or whatever. <laughs> but... Almost all the heavy lifting is done by Logic's built-in sampler because I came up in the Fairlight Akai sampler era. Right. And a lot of my most used sounds are just a single, very characterful sample mapped across 88 keys. And if I play it down low, it's some evil drone. If I play it up high, it's some spooky whistle. And so I still work very much in that fashion. But my template is basically... 768 instances of EXS divided up into, (laughs) and it loads on a, and because Logic Sampler is so efficient, it'll load on a MacBook Air. It's not even a problem because I'm not using any third party instruments or plugins. As Mm -hmm. soon as you put two instances of contact in there, now you need a $10,000 computer. But, (laughs) uh, and my template, you know, I divide things up because I'm 
an old man, I still think in terms of 16 MIDI channels. So I break things up into bricks of 16. So I'll have 16 low drums, like kicks and sub hits, then 16 toms and taikos, then 16 mid-range percussion, darbukas and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. 16 high percussion and so on. So I have to look at it on the screen. It's very organized. Everything's all color coded. It's all (laughs) pre-routed to stems. It's super, super organized because I'll build that template before starting writing any of the music while watching the movie so that each sound I audition, I'm thinking of it in terms of, is this in context with what we're seeing here? or Is this totally not the vibe? And I'll f- gradually build out that template within those predefined 16 channel bricks. So I don't wind up with 75 staccato string instruments. <laughs> they got to fit right. in that brick of 16 that I've allotted for them. After that template is built, I'm applying compression and EQ and reverb and setting its level so that things are in context, ready to rock. I use a certain kick drum sound, this sort of reverby 909 kick that I've used for decades. I use that as the thing around which I balance my mixes. So I might program in a 4x4 beat just on that at a MIDI velocity 110, the fader at minus 6, and I put all the faders on the channel strips of Logic at minus six, on the individual instruments and audio tracks, and then I balance their volume using the EQ, the compressor, and the output level control on the individual sampler so that I can leave the faders all at minus six. And as I'm working, I'm referencing how loud things need to be relative to that known quantity kick drum so that when my template is done, I don't have to like manual, I don't have to automate. I mean, I hardly ever use any automation and I almost never even have to touch the faders. They're all at minus six because I've pre-balanced the volumes and everything. After that template is done, then that gets saved. And all the cues might be 40 or 60 cues in a movie are all based on that template. So that as I switch between cues as I'm working, Logic for 25 years has done what people use Vienna Ensemble Pro for, which is there's a checkbox in one of the preferences that says keep common samples in memory when switching songs. That it does. So if you have two songs that were based on the same template with the same instruments in the same instrument slots, then switching between the songs takes seconds Mm -hmm. because it doesn't unload and reload all the samplers. Combine that with Logic's recent feature, which is load unused tracks in disabled mode, then even that massive template, 768 EXSs, 256 slots going to Vienna Ensemble, which I almost never use, 256 audio tracks, 16 quad stem submasters with Waves L3 LL on every stem submaster to limiter, you know, mastering yeah. limiters, 32 instances of Space Designer, so a front and a back reverb for each stem, a front and a back stereo delay for each stem, all that stuff loads in seconds and takes nominal CPU mm-hmm. because logic is so efficient like that. That template, building that template takes a long time, but I know from pain and suffering on some projects where I didn't take the time to build a very comprehensive template that the further and deeper you get into the project, 
the worse things get. And it just each queue is this its own little weird environment with its own crazy, stupid mix routing. Then when it comes time to print mixes, you spend so much time like trying to get all the drums to be on stem B or whatever that <laughs> I'd rather spend that time at the at the beginning, sure, and get yeah. that nailed down because it's inevitable that as as I'm working, I'm saying, oh, I need just one more sound that I don't have in my template. Well, that's fine. Because at the end of each of those 16-channel bricks, I usually leave one or two slots empty for a wild card instrument that I may need to load up at the last minute in the heat of battle. I can load it into the correct group so that it goes to the right stem and I don't have to assign anything. I just pop an instrument into that empty slot if I need one more Tyco drum that I didn't include in the template or whatever. Spending the time to build that template and make it as sturdy and comprehensive as possible is super worth it to me at the beginning of the project because once you're up and running and you're half the deadline's getting closer it there won't be time to do it you know got to do it first based on what you're saying how you create your templates with stems and whatnot is that how you're delivering everything or are you delivering individual multi-tracks oh no i'm definitely delivering pre-mixed stems you know, on some projects, one TV series, I just gave them stereo mixes so I could crush them with a finalizer plug-in. On one TV series, I would give them three stems or maybe four that were just stereo pairs mm-hmm. because the time limitation of doing a, a show every week and having 42 minutes of music, not only did I not have the patience or the time to go deeper than three or four stems, but also on the dub stage, they they can't faff around with the music all day. Sure. You know, they need to just be able to throw it up and maybe they can dip the drums if there's some gunshots or whatever. That that was enough. Mm-hmm. But on most of the feature projects, I deliver as at least eight stems. For a long time, the first Saw movie, for instance, was three stems, each of those in 5.1 surround. Mm. So it would be drums, keys, and metals, and weird stuff, and orchestral stuff. And that was partly due to the limitations of the rigs that I had at the time. As computers got faster and I changed from using ADAT to get back and forth to, between machines to using MADI, now I had more channels. For the past however many years, 10 years or so, I've got 64 channels coming from the logic machine over to a separate Pro Tools machine. Mm. My whole rig is basically three computers. One is the Logic rig, which sometimes I also use Ableton Live as a rewire slave behind Logic to grind up audio with the various tempo and time stretch stuff. Then a Mac Mini, which just uses the software called VideoSync, which I actually had a hand in helping develop, which is just a standalone video player that slaves to incoming MIDI timecode. And that lets you keep a playlist of the the five reels of a movie on a separate computer. So you don't have to import the video into your Logic session. You don't have to have any of the annoyance or CPU load associated with trying to work with the video actually inside Logic. Sure. So Logic is just back to being a music program. And the video is running as a slave to it over... MIDI timecode and the audio comes out of that you know the dialogue and the temp music and sound effects from that Mac mini that's a video player just comes into a pair of inputs on my Motu interface and 
doesn't go into logic and won't be printed if I do a bounce and so forth. Sure. It's just for monitoring purposes. So all of and your the logic other sessions, sorry to cut you off, all of yeah. your logic sessions then, because you're using individual sessions for each scene or for each cue that you're doing to a scene, has yep. its own SMPTE code strictly for that session then. It's not always starting at right. like one hour, which most people tend to oh, use. Oh, no, no, no. My sync point on any of my logic songs is always bar nine, not bar one. Nope. Because you always want <laughs> yeah. <the> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and it's not that different to having the video inside logic, but basically you say, you, you know, open up the sync settings and say bar nine equals 02.01.03.13. And there's or whatever. Your also Time. your, your, your and pop click at the top. Exactly. The benefit of having the video on a separate computer, I started doing that 25 years ago when we are using G4 Mac Mac computers. I remember. <laughs> they yep. just, yep. you know, you'd load the video in and you could have one track of audio and let the overload. Machine would crash. So <laughs> there used to be this software called Virtual VTR, which basically did what this software Video Sync does now. But Virtual VTR, it faded and died a horrible death. At one point, there was a, a post on Gear Sluts in the Music for Picture section where somebody made a post saying, hey, I'm a computer science student doing my master's degree, and I love film music and so forth. I would love to think of a coding project that I could do for my final project for my computer science master's degree. I don't want to write a DAW. I don't want to write a plug-in. But is there any kind of software idea that any of you guys might have that would help your workflow that I could use as a basis for my final project? And so I immediately, you know, crack my knuckles <laughs> and start typing. And I was like, there used to be this software called Virtual VTR that lets you make a playlist of movie files on a separate computer and whatever time code hit the correct movie would play. Because, you know, when you're scoring a feature, you have, it's not just one movie file. It's right. one movie file per reel, which is 18 or 20 minutes long each. And reel one, the SMPTE starts at one hour. Reel two, the time code starts at two hours and so on. Mm -hmm. So what you want is a playlist where you can drop these five or six movie files in. And if you send it SMPTE that begins with hour number three, it'll queue up the reel three movie file. Mm -hmm. If you send it time code that, begins at hour number five, it'll close that window and open up the real five movie. So I've typed all this out on this reply to this post on Gearspace. The guy that had created the thread said, it's funny you mention that because my summer job is working at the largest dubbing stage in Germany. And my job is specifically to ride herd on a row of Mac G5 computers <laughs> with Kona video cards running virtual VTR because I know exactly what that software is and I know that it's dead and gone and we keep a bunch of vintage computers running because if we don't have that we can't play back picture on the dub stage right I said well great then do you know what it is so long story short this guy Florian wound up creating this time code slaved video player software it's it was originally called video slave which is slightly politically insensitive name so he changed the name of it to video sync and he then added many features which make it ideal for adr uses things like streamers and punches and mm -hmm. other tools that maybe a basic user like me doesn't need but that make it very useful to guys doing dialogue recording and so forth so that runs on a mac mini and it just sits there in a the corner and you literally don't have to touch it as you jump around between logic projects Whatever time code comes out of logic will call up the correct movie file. That's one of them. That's so awesome. Can, 
Yeah, it's it's a fantastic solution, and it can run on a fairly mild Mac Mini. I'm running it on a 12-year-old i7 Mac Mini, Oof. although the current version is uh, Apple Silicon native. It'll run effortlessly on the cheapest Mac Mini they make. You know, The third computer is the Pro Tools machine, and I get audio out of Logic and over to it via MadEye. I've got a Motu 112D on the Logic side. That sends 64 channels of MadEye over a cable that costs $7 and <laughs> you know, goes into... And the Pro Tools rig, I don't have any plugins on it. I mean, I do. When I'm recording my stems, Pro Tools is strictly acting like a two-track, a mix-down deck, a DAT machine, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a 64-channel DAT machine. And it's recording the stems. On that machine, I have the now-discontinued HD Native Thunderbolt box with an Avid MadEye interface for 64 channels of input and output, and then the Avid Sync HD box, which gives me frame edge accurate timecode sync. So when it's time to print stems, I leave that Pro Tools machine turned off like most of the time. But when it's time to print stems, turn it on, switch the logic rig from internal digital audio clock to slave to word clock input for the digital audio clock. Mm-hmm. If I hit the space bar on the Pro Tools machine, timecode comes out of the sync HD peripheral on an XLR jack. Not a MIDI timecode, but like... right. Time code, like audio. And that goes into the Uniter interface on the Logic machine. Logic immediately lights up blue in the timeline bar, immediately locks, and audio flows out of the MadEye ports and hits the inputs of Pro Tools. And even with a native rig, recording to the boot drive on a six-core Mac Pro trash can, I can easily record a 64-channel pass, record another 64-channel pass, while playing the first one, and then do that again. And wow. I, can e- I can easily have 128 or 256 channels of audio at 24-bit, 48K, even on the boot drive on a Pro Tools native rig. And that's all that that gets used for, is just capturing the output of Logic. So I don't have to like do loopback recording. I don't mm-hmm. have to record the stems to empty audio tracks in Logic. Which I don't have to bounce to disk. It, or It's just a one real-time pass. Mm-hmm. Push record on Pro Tools and listen to the queue. If it's a six-minute queue, it takes six minutes to output it. It goes over to Pro Tools. And then I can deliver the Pro Tools session with those WAV files in place to the music editor, who then integrates it with their world. Right. And they usually, on the, on the mix stage, they usually have numerous Pro Tools rigs. One that's only playing back the sound effects one that's only playing back the dialogue, and one that's only playing back all the music. So the music editor has his own rig that only contains the score and any other incidental music. I can and do give them the Pro Tools session file. I pretend that due to a software incompatibility, they are unable to load my Pro Tools session file, just in case that ever happens. So I just pretend that it doesn't exist. If it works, fantastic. But if it doesn't, in Pro Tools, those the audio is recorded as B-Wave files, which are time-stamped. Broadcast so, wave, yep. Exactly. Because in many cases on the final mix stage, the music editor may already have a Pro Tools session built with some of the source music and so on, and also whatever elaborate I.O. assignments and mappings they need for the 
mix stage. Sure. So if he loads up my Pro Tools session, then his stuff's going to be, he's going to have to remap the IOs. Sometimes it's easier for him to just grab my wave files and drop them into his session. I do a few things to make that as simple as possible. One is that I begin all my bounces in Logic or recordings in Pro Tools only at whole second intervals. If bar nine, where the first kick drum is, is at one hour, two minutes, 13 seconds, and nine frames, I'll begin the record. I'll set Pro Tools to punch in at three hours, three minutes, nine seconds, and zero frames. Mm. In other words, the next whole second interval before the beginning of the actual audio. That way, the punch in exactly at bar nine, there might be, it might not be exactly at bar nine. There might be some little click, some little pop, some little weirdness. So I make sure that all my recordings start not less than one second before the actual audio and at a whole second interval. That way, when they drop it into the timeline, they're not fiddling with frames. They just got to get it. If it's a second off, it's going to be obvious. Right. If it's a frame off, it might not be obvious. So I make my punches always on a whole second. They can drop the wave files into their timeline. That way also, if they nudge stuff, if the director says, it feels like the music's a little before the beat when the door slam comes. If they nudge something, they can. it's easier for them to calculate how much it's been moved, if they have to put it back, whatever, right. because they know that the default position is zero, zero frames for mm-hmm. any punch. That just makes it a little bit easier in the heat of battle on the dub stage when they need to deal with stuff. So that three machine workflow, I don't use any slave computers to run Vienna Ensemble Pro as many film composers do because I'm not really trying to simulate a real orchestra. So I don't have like flutes, clarinets, you know, I don't need that layout. I have it. I can use it. When I do use Vienna Ensemble Pro, it's on the same computer as Logic and it's just as a way to maybe load up eight or 16 instances of contact that I know I'm going to use on every cue and I'm not going to change anything. I just need the Tinaguo cello, the Spitfire solo violin. I have some very small subset of orchestral instruments that are on pig-worthy sample players like Contact and Sign and Spitfire player, and I just don't want them inside the Logic session, so I'll load them into Vienna Ensemble and just leave that parked for the duration of the project. My use of that is caveman-esque compared to how most people, film composers, get very elaborate with Vienna Ensemble. I'm just glad I don't need need to. (laughs) (laughs) How much time do you spend um, sort of like going through and doing actual like sound design and things? Is that sort of like an ongoing process or in between projects? Because I'm assuming once you're up and running, there's probably very little time for that. Well, it's kind of both. I Whenever I'm not working, which is, I mean, I don't work all that much, you know. I, I, I work as little as possible. <laughs> but in between projects, I'm always making new samples and experimenting with all these toys. And if I find something that's halfway towards not sucking, I record it. Since I've been sampling stuff for 40 years or so, it's not like, oh boy, we got to figure out how we're going to sample it. I just kind of have it down to a routine. And if i playing a ukulele through the H9000 and it's pitched down two octaves and it's making this wild kind of chong, chong, I go, great. I know how I would use that and I know how many round robins and how many velocity zones and how many pitch splits I would want if I was going to play that on the keyboard. You know what? I'll take the 20 minutes and record those. And I do have... 
some sort of sampling templates in Logic, which are known songs that I can load up and record into that make it a little easier to edit and export the individual samples. So I'm always adding to my own sample collection. I'm always buying contact libraries, loading them up, deciding that 95% of it sucks ass, and then <laughs> either exporting the wave files and using those 5% of the wave files that I like in Logic Sampler, or in some cases, just running the contact library through some effects and then just sampling it so that I don't have to use the actual contact library. I just, all I wanted was that one sound, that one like violin bow scrape thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't need the whole choke my CPU just to load one stupid thing out of some contact library. If, if that's the case, I'll just sample it. And when I do get new libraries, whether they're wave packs or contact libraries or whatever, the first thing I do is I listen to every single molecule of sound in it. I don't just drop it into the strings drive and I'll come back to that later. I do it right then, as soon as it's done downloading. Go through it. If it's a wave pack, I listen to the all every single sample. And if it's not solid gold, it's in the trash and it's gone right then. And I don't keep stuff around just in case. I'm definitely ready to make a snap decision right here and now. That sample sucks. It's going. It's gone. And the ones that are left, and I have calculated my keep rate, and my keep rate is above 5%, below 10%. Oof. It's usually around, <laughs> around 7% of stuff that I keep out of any sample product that I buy. Sure. For contact libraries, sometimes you can't like effectively throw away portions of it because... Now, some instruments might not load because you threw away some of the samples or what some of them are monoliths with encoded samples that you can't easily just start deleting stuff. That's why I have 16 freaking terabytes of contact libraries, a lot of which is just parked on the side uh -huh. because converting and resampling stuff from contact into logic sampler, you lose a lot of the fancy schmancy features that contact has like crazy user interfaces with XY pads and step sequencers, that's gone. Right. Multiple mic positions, technically you could do it in Logic Sampler, but it's too much pain. So mm -hmm. I just, the mix position and maybe the close mic position. And anything in contact that's like a, a, an orchestral instrument library that uses true legato transition samples, obviously that can't be duplicated in Logic Sampler. So I don't even try to resample that stuff. That's why I keep the actual contact instruments around. That's why I pay full pop for them and keep them there on expensive ass SSDs in case I'm working on something. I go, oh, I'm using this cello drone, but I think that library actually had some good performances with legato transitions that will tonally match this weird drone sample I'm using. So I can just go to the real contact library and load it up. Of course, there are some contact libraries like the, Cinesamples Tina Guo solo cello, which is godlike. And I use that all the time in contact because it cannot be effectively reduced into something that is useful in Logic Sampler. So it's this weird mix where the mass quantities of stuff are being played out of Logic Sampler and then a few tracks of specialty instruments in contact or Omnisphere or the orchestral tools sign player or whatever. Right. I hear you. Okay. I am definitely sampling when I'm not working. But when a project starts, during that template building phase, if I have two months to do a film, then I allow myself a week of making new sounds and a week of building a template 
hopefully incorporating some of those new recordings. So first is put the movie on loop and make some new sounds with the violin bow scraping on a piece of metal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Edit those samples and turn them into logic sampler instruments. Then spend a week building out the template with those sounds and whatever my favorites of my collection are that I feel are appropriate. And then I have six weeks to do the movie, and which is usually not enough. <laughs> <laughs> As we're talking about contact instruments, and I'm reminded that you did a library with Spitfire hammers. Is that based on... I don't think it is. I'm asking my own question here. <laughs> but th- th- that's not based on things that you already had, that you were sort of like, no. these are my go-tos, because you re-recorded everything, right? Oh, yeah. Everything was a fresh recording. And on my own projects, I, you know, I have this giant concrete and glass living room with these asymmetrical walls, and I randomly can get a really great drum sound in there that I like. And my tendency on most of my scoring stuff is to use... Not, is to not use like epic tycos like everybody freaking does because I wind up not being able to use many of those epic quote-unquote percussion libraries because a lot of the parts that I want to play have more than just one hit every downbeat. A lot of those sample libraries, there's so much reverb, they're so wet that if you just go blum blum, you're like, oh, that sounds amazing. But as soon as I start to actually play the kind of parts that I want to play, now the reverb tails are overlapping each other and it just turns into this hurricane of mud. So I tend to use rock drum instruments and rock drum room tone and room reverb characters playing movie drum parts, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, since I was, in theory anyway, I was a drummer, uh, I have a big collection of drums. I have one of the Ludwig Orange Vistalite John Bonham kits and a bunch of rototoms, including like the great big ones that they stopped making years ago. So I tend to use those more rock-oriented instruments and record them in my own space, which has a reverb quality that I would describe as the in utero drum sound. Hmm. Basically, that Albini-style thick and brash but not overly long reverb character because when you're working with samples and fast complex rhythms you don't have that kind of buildup of mud get yeah, a more so flexibility for, of them i guess exactly yeah. and since i couldn't find existing sample libraries that had that character that was part of the motivation for doing hammers so when i was approached by spitfire to collaborate on some sample releases I knew that drums would be the most pain and suffering, so I wanted to do that first, as opposed to like, well, let's just work our way up to it. I was like, no, let's do the worst part first, because I knew that it would be the most time-consuming and elaborate processing, mixing, and editing. So we recorded that project here at my house in the living room with no correct sound isolation. So if anybody on the freaking forum says they can hear a motorcycle driving by or something well too bad but, um, <laughs> before we started this project i did some tests because spitfire said what type of libraries would you like to do and i said well i'm always recording drums for my own projects and i don't take any elaborate care at it I just go out into the living room. I have a Crane Song Spider, which is like an eight-channel mic pre that can also mix down to a stereo pair right on it. 
And it has digital output and it has the crane song tape saturation emulation in it. When I'm recording drums for my own projects, I just drag the spider into the room. I literally string an AES cable across the yard uh, and a headphone cable going the other way. <laughs> and I come into my studio and I don't have any assistance or anything. I come into the studio and I set logic and loop record on a given cue. And then I start it recording and I walk across the yard while it's recording <laughs> and I go into the living room and put on the headphones and just jam out until I run out of energy, which usually these days isn't too very long. Then come back in, push stop, and start editing. So when Spitfire first approached me about collaborating, I said, well, we could do drums. I mean, I, I, drums are always something that I always wind up accidentally not recording samples or stock loops that I could use later. I just record enough for the project at hand. And then later I'm like, why didn't I just record single hits? Like you always do at the end of a drum recording session. I sent the guys at Spitfire a couple of loops just extracted from an earlier project. And they were like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. Like, How did you record that? I said, man, literally I'm embarrassed, but it's in my living room with a pair of overheads and another pair of mics further back. And then I just manually mix them on the spider and I commit to a stereo blend right then. And hmm. I know I don't look back. No top and bottom Tom mics and all that. Cause that's not the context that was, that it's right. not needed for this context. Right. But when you're recording stuff for a actual piece of music, like a score, if a motorcycle drives by or a bird is tweeting in the background, <laughs> you, know, you don't notice. It's covered up by, first of all, the rest of the music and also the sound of some poor guy's arm getting torn off in a Saw movie or whatever. So uh, you, don't, you don't have to be as microscopically precise about stuff when you're recording it to be used in context. When you're making a sample library, there's going to be some dude on some forum that goes, I could hear a chair squeak. I could hear a, yeah. you know. So, and I knew that that was going to be the case because I'm that guy. Mm, I'll right. listen to a sample library. I just paid $1.99 for these strings and I heard somebody coughing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew that that was going to be an issue. So before we even started the project, after I had sent Spitfire these Tom loops that I yanked from some project from 10 years ago, that were recorded in my living room with, they're like, what kind of mics did you use? I said, I have four of these Rode NT2A mics that I bought at like Guitar Center for whatever, 300 bucks each or whatever they were. And they're okay, they're just mics. It's not, you know, nothing fancy. Because it's the room and the drum and the processing that gets me to the finish line of a drum sound. And I've never owned like fancy schmancy vintage M49s or whatever. And so I had sent these loops to Spitfire. They said, oh, these sound great. This is what we should do. Let's do that. Before we began, I did some tests where I recorded a set of single hits on the Bonham Toms and on one Rototom and one Frame Drum and one Darbuka. Recorded a bunch of Velocity Zones and Round Robins here at my house. And then I went to my friend Nate Barr's studio. And Nate Barr, he has a studio that is beyond ridiculous. It's a full scoring stage where you can record a complete orchestra. It's dead quiet. The reverb decay and everything in the room is exactly what you want for recording an orchestra or any other instrument for that matter. Mm -hmm. I even took my gear to his place and did tests with the mics in the same positions, the same distances, the same drums, same mic preamp, same gain, same everything and recorded the same drums and then edited them down and built a test patch in Logic Sampler that had the drums from 
my house on one side of the keyboard and then from middle C up had the drums from Nate's place. I got them to match as close as possible, but I didn't tell them which was which. And I sent that instrument to the guys at Spitfire. And I said, just tell me which character of sound you prefer because there are slightly different reverb tonality and decay time and all that. And they universally preferred without knowing the ones from my living room. So then it was like, great. Well, now <laughs> well that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Now we're gonna have to deal with the birds and the motorcycles. <laughs> sure. And, and, but the reason was not because my room is like a great drum room, you know, Nate's studio is world-class state of the art. He's, and we didn't even use his mics or any of his good stuff. We used my janky old road mics and my little crane song spider that's been knocking around in racks for 20 years. The something about the sound character of the reverb at Nate's sounded not unexpected. In other words, it was a familiar tonality. It was what we all have come to associate with the sound of movie percussion, you know? Sure. The sound of the drums in my room, first of all, the reverb is shorter and denser and doesn't hang around and doesn't have a graceful decay. It's it's brash and rugged and short. It's not Phil Collins in the air tonight, but I wish it was. <laughs> you know, I, it's it's trying to get to that point of like those drum intros on like the Nirvana songs on In Utero that are just so tough. Mm. They're just so rugged sounding. And the reverb sounds like it's part of the drum. It's not some effect that's been added. There's no like weird separation or gap between the drum and the reverb and that's what i wind up getting from my living room and there's another weird aspect that i discovered at my previous house which was in hollywood that is similar setup it was asymmetrical spaces very high ceilings a lot of concrete and glass concrete floors sunken living room and normally you think well we put the drums on a riser like let's get them up mm -hmm. off the floor right, right? yep well, it was never practical to do that in my old house. And then when I found this house, lo and behold, it has a sunken living room. And something weird happens when you put drums down in the pit as opposed to up on a riser. And that is that the low end goes away quicker than the high end. And what winds up exciting the reverb element of the room is more of the high frequencies, more of that pat, 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 and less of the... <laughs> and... I'm sure you could achieve that on a zillion different plugins by turning down the low frequency decay and turning up the high frequency decay or whatever. But this room and my old house just naturally behaved that way if you put the drums down in the pit. When I described to the Spitfire guys that that's what I wanted to do, they're like, but that doesn't make sense. <laughs> you can't play you know, drums in a conversation pit. What's wrong with you? Yeah, They're supposed to be up, you know? They're supposed to be uh, up on a riser. Isn't that how you're supposed to do it? I was like, hey, I, look, that's how I was taught to do it. But like, I don't know. This just, this is what I like. And they're like, that, that, that's what we're here for. The character is, whatever, is there. That's it's for you want. to curate the sound quality. So we did all the recordings here and about, took us about two weeks. I had prepared loops for the percussionists to play along to, to demonstrate what the patterns I, I wanted them to play. And I hired two young, energetic, professional percussionists as opposed to playing it myself because I can play drums well enough to do my own scores, but not to spend two weeks trying to like precisely hit the rim shot at mezzo piano <laughs> velocity. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, and I seem and to I recall, knew that, just to interject real quick, with the conversation that we were having at NAMM, you had mentioned these guys to us. Yeah. That literally yeah. they can recreate something because what you recorded and, everything that yeah. somebody had to come back and yep. he was able to match it perfectly. That's 
why i mean these guys actually have like master's degree in percussion which i didn't even know was a thing <laughs> but <laughs> and the two percussionists i used were uh, hal rosenfeld and lucas fairing uh lucas has for many years worked with the, the a-list hollywood movie percussionist mb gordy and lucas is his kind of uh, auxiliary drummer when they need four arms and also is kind of runs his studio and sets things up and tunes his drums and plays his drums and hal rosenfeld is like he's on everything he's on freaking a-list pop artists he's on bear mccreary's amazon lord of the rings rings of power he's on tons of a-list stuff and young guys that still have the energy that is fading in my arms <laughs> but but part of what and i didn't realize this going into it but now i'm going to pretend i did part of what made the process so easy and made me so glad that i had chosen such experienced and truly educated and trained and professional percussionists was that as you just said we would do some recordings and then at the end of the day we were reviewing them we were like oh wow there was a Boy, there was a lot of motorcycles and birds on the mezzo piano. You know, we're doing like six velocity layers or whatever. And we'd say, oh, Hal, we got to go back and we need right hand edge hit eight inch Darbuka mezzo piano. Just those hits. And we needed at least nine round robins for each drum. So we'd record 16 usually so we could throw half of them away. And we'd tell Hal, can you just go and do a pickup? Just the mezzo piano for, and he, his arm was like calibrated to MIDI velocity values, you know, <laughs> like he could go back in and play just a pickup take, a punch in basically. If I tried to do that, it would sound like a different drum in a different room in a different century, you know, That's but how, and, and Lucas, if you tell him, hit that drum mezzo forte it's going to be exactly that same force each time. And their precision and repeatability of their organic you know, process of hitting a drum was astonishing and was what saved our butts more than once. So I was really glad that I had those two to, uh, to actually hold the sticks because also that let me be in the control room and hear the recordings as they're going down. And then I could say things like, oh, it, that's too much of a rim shot. Just maybe get a little a little further away from the edge. And I could kind of guide the process better than I, I could have if I had been in there with headphones on. Oh, so man. That's fascinating. On the topic of sort of spitfire here, I remember a long time ago, and I told you I'm a nerd here, I saw something that you did with uh, Christian Hansen from Spitfire when you showed mm -hmm. him the uh, Chas Smith instruments that you had. Yep. I'm guessing you're you're to blame for that, yeah? That they actually have that. Oh, yeah. Now, right? I had been introduced to Chaz 20-some years ago, right around when I was first doing the first Saw movie. Mm. And again, that friend that I was describing earlier who didn't want to drive the car, just wanted to put his feet out the window, he introduced me to Chaz. Oh, and nice. And he said, my friend Peter, like I said, he records with Thomas Newman and other esoteric, artsy, both film composers and art music people. And he knew Chaz because Chaz is, I mean, Chaz is in his 70s, but he's had a long career as an experimental musician doing microtonal music. He's also an expert pedal steel player. Like he can rip the Bakersfield vibe like 
flawlessly, but he also does like weird microtonal pedal steel experiments with stuff attached to the guitar that buzzes and rattles. And he's a madman. Peter introduced me to Chaz when he found out that I was about to do this horror movie. And he said, oh, I've got someone you must meet. He builds these instruments that are microtonal, that are metal, that are sculptural instruments that you can play with mallets or violin bows and create haunting otherworldly tones. And I said, that sounds exactly right up my alley. (laughs) Exactly. And Chaz was a little gun shy about doing session work because he had been involved in A-list movies in the past through the 80s and 90s. He might do a session on a movie for whatever, Star Trek, the motion picture, and then Star Trek II, The Search for Spock comes out, and there's his sounds on this score, but he didn't get called again. He didn't get paid again. Now, it wasn't the Star Trek movies, but he had had some... Got burned a little bit. He got a little sting, you know, so he was a little gun shy. He didn't want to, like, even record on my score. But my buddy Peter, who I'd known for 30-some years at this point, was able to convince Chaz, he said, look... This is my friend, Charlie. Trust me. I've known him since we were children. He will not fuck you over. So I basically gave Chaz 10% of my fee for the Saw movie in return for him letting me use some samples of stuff that he had already recorded of his instruments. Uh, He had this hard drive, the Chaz drive. And so he (laughs) let me pull, pull some samples from it, and I used them in the Saw movies. Then as I would keep doing the sequels, I mean, who knew this thing was going to turn into this global juggernaut? But as it became successful and we started doing sequels, I then continued to send him payment for each new movie where I was using these samples because it's the right thing to do. Of course. I would want someone to do that for me. And then a few years ago when he was fixing to move out of the Los Angeles area and move up to Northern California, he said, you know, he's got these enormous instruments that, you know, he's a guy that owns forklifts and lathes and things like that. But even still, he had more stuff than he could carry. And the one instrument that kind of became the signature sound of the villain in the Saw movies was coincidentally an instrument that Chaz had built not for himself, but he had built it. He doesn't make instruments to sell. Like, you can't buy one of his instruments. He had built this instrument for a, for a concert project and then never used it coincidentally that was the one that made this one kind of growling bowed tone that I used in the Saw movies so when he's getting ready to move he said look I know how much you like that instrument I don't use it I only made it for this one concert project 20 years ago and my rider box truck my 32 foot box truck is full so if you want I would sell it to you so Bring your checkbook and a pen with a lot of ink so you can write a lot of zeros. (laughs) And I was like, I'll be right over. And because it's not like I'm buying this stuff every week. Sure. You know, this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I I went running over there and he was, he did sell me this instrument, which he had named K Lasta. And at the same time, he showed me another instrument, which he had built that he said, you know, I built this thing and it didn't really work the way I used it for one project. It didn't really work the way I wanted it to. And, I was going to modify it, but then I said, screw it. And I just built a different one. So I'm not selling you this one and I'm not giving it to you, but stick it in your truck and I don't ever want to see it again. (laughs) So I I wound up with two of his instruments. Yeah, it's still technically his. I wound up with two of his instruments and been a huge proponent of his work and just think he's one of the true sonic innovators. And I know that 
he also has worked with Hans Zimmer a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the timeline is. I would like to think that I got to him first, but I'm not sure if that's true. There is an interesting little documentary around the time that Hans was scoring the Man of Steel Superman movie. Mm-hmm. And he got Chaz to assemble, first of all, an army of eight pedal steel players, I think it was, mm. to make these ungodly giant roars. Um, and of course, Chaz can find eight pedal steel players like in his front room, probably. <laughs> And also to record some of his sculptural instruments to create tones that evoked the planet Krypton or whatever. And there's an interesting little documentary, which can be found by Googling Hans Zimmer, Man of Steel, Chaz Smith. In this little documentary, Chaz goes into his studio and he shows his metal shop and he shows some of the instruments. Around that time is when I began talking to Spitfires. We were dreaming up grand plans for someday we'll do a library. And I said, oh, you got to meet my buddy, Chaz Smith. He's ridiculous, and he makes sounds that no one else can or would make. And I put the two together, and it took almost 10 years for Spitfire to convince him to collaborate on a sample product. Spitfire is unlike any other sample vendor that I've met because they pay a calculated royalty directly to the content creator. It's basically anywhere from a third to a half, depending on how many other people had to come in and edit the stuff. Because those people, the poor sample choppers at Spitfire HQ, they get a royalty too. They Everybody gets a point. And on the Hammers project, the two percussionists and the recording engineer, they all got a point. I wasn't taking all the money. So they're getting a royalty for each copy that's sold. And I told Chaz, I said, look, Spitfire, they are not going to screw you, man. Trust me, I didn't screw you, did I? <laughs> but it still took 10 years because these are his... Babies. Sonic creations, sure. you know, there is babies. But at, at a certain point, he relented. I recognize a lot of the content in the Spitfire Chaz Smith library as stuff that he had recorded years and years ago and never used. <laughs> but it's pristine single note bow strokes on these metal instruments. Some of the instruments no longer exist. They were built and disassembled or they were cut in half and welded together into something else. Mm-hmm. I know that he recorded a lot of new content, but I did recognize a couple of sounds as being from that old Chaz Drive that I got a hold of in 2004. Yeah. It took a while to convince Chaz to allow such a thing to occur. And the final product came out great, and I hope he's making a ton of money off of it. Yeah, well, he got some of my money, that's for sure, because I remember <laughs> watching that video on, and, and hearing those sounds, you know, like you're saying, the kid lost with a bow, and yeah. even, I'm just like, oh my God, I, I was trying, how can I recreate that? And I, I finally concluded that I can't without that. So when I saw that Spitfire was doing this, I was pretty quick with a drawn credit card right there. So, <laughs> yeah. like, so good. Yeah, that no, sounds amazing. One thing, I'm skipping around here a little bit, but I had a few things that I wanted to ask you. I was sort of becoming aware of you. I'd have been like late 90s when I, I was really turned on to specifically the Fragile, the Nine Inch Nails album was the one that sort of did it for me. So I was kind of late to the party, I guess, as it were. Then I started noticing this name Charlie Clouser coming up on Rob Zombie remixes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's when I sort of was turned on to that. So I started getting really nerdy into the music of that era. And I have to ask you, you might not know, but I am very curious because I know there's a guy, Keith Hillebrand, that was part of those sessions. He had an album out that I have that I love. I can't find anything. Are you still in contact with him? Do you know what he's doing now? 
I know that he's still, he lives in freaking Thailand now. Okay. And, but he's still releasing music and recording music. And, you know, we found him when we were in the gearing up to make the, the fragile album, Nine Inch Nails had moved to New Orleans. Trent had bought this enormous funeral home of course, and converted it into, yeah. as you do when you're Trent yeah. Reznor, and right. converted it into a massive studio complex with the main studio and Studio B and a giant live room and a rehearsal room and storage for tour gear and separate studios for each band member and just it a ridiculously awesome setup. As we were gearing up for this, you know, we spent like a, a year, like the building was like holes in the roof and stuff and and certainly no ssl console in there so it took like a year to build this place out and to get it up and running and during that period there was these very early sample cds that one was called a poke in the ear with a sharp stick Mm -hmm. and it was one of the very first like industrial sound design musical sample libraries it was the 1.0 of those ill sounds and in fact a lot of the sounds in that coil remix of Nine Inch Nails Closer that's used in the movie mm-hmm. Seven, you know, not to burst anyone's bubble, but some of those sounds are just straight off of poking the ear with a sharp stick. They're not pitched, they're not edited, they're just like, boink, and there it is. <laughs> and so we all love that sample CD, but there's only so much stuff you can get off of a sample CD before you've worn it out, right? Sure. Then there was other sample CDs that Keith had made called Diffusion of Useful Noise. I remember that, yeah. Right? Yeah. That was that was how I discovered Keith. We thought these sounds are fantastic. In fact, they're so good, we want our own supply of these. So I contacted Keith and convinced him to move to New Orleans and become one of the in-house sound designers for Nine Inch Nails. And he did exactly that. And so for the, all through the making of The Fragile, Keith was creating sounds in his... He had a separate studio in the upstairs hallway across from mine. And so he was creating sounds using his ARP 2600 and digital. We didn't have plugins back in those days, kids, but you know, using <laughs> early digital processing software like Hyperprism and Audio Mulch and things like that to create some of the raw material that we could pick through while making the fragile. Right. And yeah. Steve Duda also was similar adventure. You know, Steve Duda, who created the, he was one of the inventors of the BFD drum plugin, which. Mm an idea which came from me and him being way too stoned in the middle of the night. <laughs> and then he went on to create the legendary synth plug-in Serum. Oh, oh wow. man. And that's, that's apparently now, I've seen guys on Instagram showing how to turn that into a drum plug-in. Yeah. And make it do it's crazy, wicked. wicked, humanized field drum patches mm-hmm. automatically. It's pretty crazy. Steve and Keith were my two proudest hires in the in the nails camp because they both had a unique and unusual skill set that we could find a, a home for in the Nine Inch Nails camp. Keith was doing the sort of bleeding eardrum sound design and creating raw sample fodder for us, and and also helping to to drive. You know, for a long time he drove the computer in the in the main room as Trent was tracking. Because I just couldn't take it anymore. I wanted to go upstairs to my little cubby hole and <laughs> play video try games. In, try and yeah, exactly. No, try in vain to write a hi hat part that might be included on the album. You know. <laughs> but Steve was a similar kind of thing. He was a guy that worked at Digidesign, who I spoke to so frequently 
when we'd have tech support issues that eventually they gave me his direct phone number and his home phone number. <laughs> and then eventually I, I convinced him to also quit his normal good paying job at DigiDesign and move to New Orleans <laughs> and become our one of our in-house experts. He was also great. He helped back in the day. The song The Wretched yeah. on, on The Fragile was created with the drum part for that was created with Rebirth. Remember Rebirth? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, this was before the era when Propellerheads allowed users to do Rebirth mods where they would drop their own samples into it. Mm. When it first came out, it had an 808 and a 909 and two 303s, and that's it. And you couldn't open the hood and you couldn't swap samples. We got Steve Duda down there and we said, bro, we love this program, but we're not trying to use 808s and 909s. Is there any way you can pop the hood on this fucker and find where the samples are? Because they're clearly samples, the 808 and 909. Right. They're not synthesized. We're like, is there any way? Like, and he's like, I don't know. I still don't have no idea how he did it, but he was like, oh yeah. And he popped the he snapped the case on that thing so fast, popped the hood, <laughs> went digging around and searching for text strings or whatever. He found where the samples were stored. And then he figured out a way that allowed me to give him a set of samples to replace the 808 and 909 samples in Rebirth. So that's what we used to make the Wretched and to make a lot of other percussion elements on the the Fragile album. Of course, as soon as he had spent two months figuring out how to do that, then Propellerheads came out with, you know, Rebirth version two that allowed anybody. (laughs) But, But we felt like we were badasses there for a minute, you know. Well, that's how you do it. I learned something today. (laughs) Yeah, and Steve also, you know, the BFD drum plug-in and the the concept of having a drum sampler that when you hit one key, you see 16 VU meters lighting up. That was a concept that Steve and I literally thought up while playing PlayStation 1 Wipeout game and smoking bong hits at 3 in the morning. And (laughs) because we had just gone and recorded at Steve Albini's Electrical Audio with Bill Rieflin, and we had taken single hits recording. We'd recorded the parts that we wanted Bill to play on the record, but we also then at the end of the session, like I always should have done on my movie drums in my living room, we recorded single hits onto analog tape with, I think we had 18 mics all together. So we had these multi-track drum recordings, and the first thing that we did was Alan Mulder mixed them down to stereo. We are using emulator fours in those days, so we made a bank of, of the single hits of Bill Rieflin's drums as recorded by Steve Albini in his amazing room, but they were just stereo wave files. We didn't have that multi-channel ability, and so me and Steve playing Wipeout, getting stoned, we're like, dude, what if? Okay, p- bear with me. Picture this. <laughs> you hit one key, and it triggers all... 18 channels so you get the snare bleed on the tom mics you get all the overheads in the rooms and then we can record a midi drum part and alan can mix it as though he had all the mics in place wouldn't that be totally cool and (laughs) and of course steve was like we can absolutely do that let's do that we had all the material on analog tape we dumped it into pro tools we edited all the single hit drums but with all 18 channels we exported all of those channels as separate individual files per drum per hit loaded them into an emulator four mapped them so that when you hit one key all 18 channels would fire hit the key and you could hear all 18 channels going because the poor emulator four couldn't fire them phase accurate. <laughs> oh no yeah right 
fortunately, we have eight emulator fours, so we'll use one of them for the kick, one of them for the... It's, it never really worked because the engine of the samplers in those days was not up to the task. Sure. But the concept was sound. And then yeah. many years later, after he had left the Nine Inch Nails camp and was back in L.A., and he began working with the guys from F-Expansion, they finally coded an engine that could do that and maintain the phase relationship between all those signals. And BFD was, I think, was the first multi-mic position drum sample library. Now, of course, like Contact does it. Everybody does it. Yeah. But I would like to think, maybe everybody else thought of that same idea at the same time we were playing PlayStation and getting baked. But <laughs> I would like to think that me and Steve came up with this amazing idea and then failed to implement it due to the limitations of the current technology. But then he later was able to make good on it, and BFD kind of spawned yeah, a was whole that, series like, of imitators or, you know, like Superior Drummer and all those, right. and of course all the contact libraries that do a similar thing. But it was yeah. based on Steve's pioneering work in that field, I'd like to think. <laughs> Yeah, it's something that, you know, obviously we talk sometimes on the podcast and we do retrospects or, or whatever, but how the technology that we have today, we sort of take it for granted that well, yeah. we can do all of these wonderful things. That just the other week we were talking about basic MIDI and what we had to do like before there was MIDI, you know, yeah. and today we don't we don't think twice about it. It is a. Uh, it, yeah, back in my day, kids. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to school. You know? Oh, don't get yeah. me started on that because I literally did do that. <laughs> yeah. There was a fun aspect to that challenge and to feeling like you triumphed over this elaborate room full of technology, two Studer 24 track machines and a Microlinks timeline synchronizer and the when you got it all working you really felt like you had achieved something just to get it to work never mind the music part of it just getting <laughs> right. the gear sure. working was like a triumph you know right it's like climbing Mount Everest and saying I have yeah. conquered yeah <laughs> because it was there <laughs> exactly yeah yeah <laughs> thank you very much for taking the time here Charlie uh, really really appreciate it we have. Three questions that we'd like to wrap up with. Uh-oh. I'll start us off. Uh, don't, don't be too scared. It's, uh, yeah. What is the airspeed of an unladen swallow? No. Um, sorry. No, the, the, the first question is, what's your favorite piece of gear that you can't live without? Ooh. Well, I guess, you know, computers and software and plugins don't count. Whatever you um, want, man. I would say this year it's going to be... See, that is a really good question. I'm looking around the room like, okay, which of you would I save in a fire? Um, <laughs> yeah. You got three seconds to grab it. <laughs> yeah. I would say this year it's the Waldorf Quantum synthesizer. Okay. All right. It's there. Yes, they make plugins that do a lot of what it does, but it just sounds so darn good, even when a plugin is basically doing the same thing with the granular synth and all that. It just sounds great. It's wonderful. I'm always looking for an excuse to use it. Well, there's something to be said for tactile, right? Being able to oh, yeah. turn knobs and stuff like that. Okay. Jody, you want to do the next one? Biggest lesson learned. Ooh. Um, the, the answer is multi-part. I've only ever had really one mentor, which was that Australian guy that hired me off the floor at Sam Ash to help him on that Equalizer TV show. And he basically only ever imparted a couple of words of wisdom 
but I carry them with me to this day. One was don't ever take credit for someone else's work. If somebody wrote a piece of, uh, contributed to a piece of music, they need to get credit. And he was saying this in the context of don't ever like put some music on your demo reel that you didn't write and try to pass it off as your work. He said, because in the film world, you might think you're fooling people, but somebody's going to know. Of course. And, you know, so he said, don't ever even consider doing that. And he was basically saying in the context of, don't take any of this music that we're doing together from the Equalizer and put it on a demo reel and say you did it because they'll look up the credits and your name's not on the credits. Because I wasn't writing anything. I was like mixing it and making drum sounds for him or whatever. So fair enough. He said, don't ever take credit for someone else's work. He also said, don't ever be late. There's no such thing as a dog ate my homework story in this business. He said, if you only had, if you ran out of time and you didn't have any good ideas and all you had time to do was a little boom, 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 and a little two string chords on top, you go into that room as if that is the ultimate idea. And that is exactly what you intended to do. It's not all that you could come up with in the short amount of time you had left after you faffed around playing video games, whatever you've got that day is the one. No, don't ever be late and don't ever tell a dog ate my homework story about why stuff isn't ready. If the stuff isn't ready, bring what you got and stand behind it as if that's exactly what you intended to do. If you'd have had another six months to do it, it still would have been this. Those were his... Piece of advice. I try to carry those with me, you know. Yeah, both nice, solid pieces of advice. advice. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And not just in music, but in life. I, I would. Like yeah, to right? think. yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So last one here. What's the piece of advice that you universally give when people ask you for advice? Besides those um, two points. Yeah. The one. Uh, you know, I I don't have much advice because everyone's use case is different. But my path to wherever I'm at now is largely been an effort to not do what somebody else is doing really, really well. So if somebody's out there just killing it in a certain style or flavor, a lot of people be like, oh, I got to figure out how they do it. I got to try to accelerate on the road of life so my car can, I can pull up alongside them as we're both doing 80 miles an hour down the freeway. But my first reaction is, I don't want to see those taillights receding into the distance <laughs> as I'm trying trying to catch up and just can't. So my first reaction is, if I see somebody who's just cruising at 80 on the freeway in the fast lane, my reaction is not to put my foot down and try to catch up. My first reaction and my natural inclination, probably just because I'm lazy and timid, is to just grab the wheel and go swerving off into the bushes immediately (laughs) and to try to find some path that is not well trodden. I might only be moving at seven miles an hour because my car was not built for (laughs) off-road exploration. You know, I might be moving more slowly, but I'm on a path that hopefully nobody else has taken yet. And maybe nobody else will be dumb enough to follow me on. And I might, if I'm lucky, wind up coming out of the bushes onto some scenic overlook that looks down into the, you know, the beautiful valley that nobody else has ever seen this view before because they're stuck on the freeway in cruise mode and I'm over here like bushwhacking it through the, the brambles and the thorns. That 
allegory just describes my effort to not repeat what other people do well. I guess you could boil it down into the old cliche chestnut of like, find your own style. But sometimes that can manifest itself in weird ways of workflow or like, oh, everybody says use these super heavy strings to get the heavy guitar sound. Well, screw it. I'm going to use the thinnest ones they got. There's a million ways in which you can run counter to the established knowledge and hopefully find some interesting results. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, as musicians, my primary instrument is guitar. And we're notorious for this kind of shit, right? Where people just want to emulate whoever the latest gunslinger is. And at some point when you start getting a little gray hair like I have, you (laughs) realize that that leads nowhere. It's like finding your own voice and stuff, as cliches as it sounds, but you're never going to outgun somebody doing what they do, which is them, right? So Yeah. You can't be Angus unless you're Angus. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I did go down that wormhole of like the guys duplicating the Schaefer wireless system that was the key to the Angus Young sound on Back in Black, and <laughs> and and then at one point that one of his guitar techs is saying, you know, it's not. It was there, it was a premier guitar rig rundown of Angus Young's rig, and he's showing the the, the interviewers asking, so what kind of pots are he's using on that? It's like they're just the standard whatever the 10k pots from Gibson. Well, well, well what about the strings? You got the Ernie balls, they're the ones in the pink package. You know, we don't <laughs> yeah. mix and match like the oh, it's not the heavy gauge on the low string. No, it's just the Ernie balls in the pink package. Well, well, what what kind of pick? It's just a Fender medium. It's not, you know. <laughs> yeah. The the thing that makes it sound that way is because it's, it's Angus. Angus. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. the fingers, it's the player. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've heard a similar story about him as well. He said, well, how, how do we get that Angus sound or the studio? Well, you, you need a 50-watt Marshall cranked up, you <laughs> right. need an SG, and then you need Angus. And that's right. how you get right. that exactly. sound. Right. Yeah. So I guess the, the lesson from all that is just everybody go out and be Angus. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Don't be Charlie because he's taken, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Charlie. We got one more thing coming up that you may be a part of here, but Jody, what do we got? It is time for our Friday finds. Chris, what have you got this week? I discovered something that is super sexy, and that's storage for your computer. <laughs> uh, I, just, I know, right? I realized that uh, Western Digital SanDisk, they have this thing called the Pro Blade Station, mm-hmm. which is... I've seen that. Yeah, it looked really, really cool to me. Where It's essentially, if you imagine like a RAID system, one Thunderbolt port going into your system, and you have these little swappable SSD drives that just goes from one to four terabyte, whatever you want, right? But you can mm-hmm. just pop them in and out, and it's got a slot for four of them. So I thought that was really cool. Looking at that, I'm like, well, the price tag has to be astronomical on this. But the housing is like 400 bucks. That's not too and bad. That's not too bad at all. And had I known this a couple of years ago, I probably would have gone with that backup <laughs> system. But right. um, the blades themselves are, it was like one terabyte, was just north of 100 bucks. So I thought that was a really cool solution. And that has to be my Friday find. So what do you got this week, Jody? I'm going with the Logic Pro drum sets under the producer kits. As a few weeks ago, we were talking about me remixing old albums and having dealt with V-drums for MIDI data. 
wanting to figure out whether or not there was any drum plugin sample libraries that actually took V-Drum snare location hits and actually changed the snare sample based on that. As it turns out, I learned this morning of the recording of this podcast episode that Logic's drums do actually change that data and change the sample of the snare drum based on general controller information number one. So Logic drums actually do do that. So that it's right under your nose all along. It's right <laughs> under my nose all along, and I never noticed it until this morning. And it's right under my nose, too, all along, and now I'm pissed that it took me 20 years to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that regard, Charlie, do you have something you found in the last week or so that you really want to tell everybody about? He's digging in you his know, racks. I, 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 went, I wheeled, pushed my chair over to the pedal board rack, and I pulled out this. Everybody wants to talk about the hologram electronics microcosm pedal, mm. right? Which is this weird granular delay. It's awesome. I have one sitting right over there. But because I bought that like directly from their website, then I started getting marketing emails for all their other products. And then they came out with this, as you do. Then they came out with this thing just a few weeks ago or a couple months ago, maybe called the Chroma console, which is kind of a multi-effect. It's a pedal, but it's stereo in and out. It can do line level or instrument level, whatever you want. At first it looks like, well, why would I want that? Because it just has a sort of one section that has a character that's sort of drive and saturation and fuzz. Another section that has is called movement, it has doubler and vibrato, phaser, tremolo and pitch. One called diffusion that's cascade and tape reels or space verb or collage or reverse echo. And then one section called texture with filter, squasher, cassette, broken audio and interference <laughs> right up your alley and you think okay i got i got plugins that do your first reaction is i got plugins that do that big deal what do i want mm -hmm. but i was like you know introductory price hard to resist i'll give it a spin and it was partly because i watched one of their demo videos where he sort of had this bland little synth sound and turned it into this roaring monstrosity i said i'll give it a toss the thing came a couple weeks ago and it is way better than it should be for what it looks like and what the knobs say they do. Just fiddling around with it and being able to change the order of the different effects immediately proved useful and just sounded good. So Hologram Electronics, they're killing it, and their new Chroma console is way cooler than you might think just by reading. So watch any of the demo videos on it, and maybe that'll convince you. But does it Angus? <laughs> it does. It will not make you Angus. I'm oh, sorry. That is the oh, one dang. thing oh. it won't do. But I was pleasantly surprised, and I've actually used it on a couple of projects already, and it's really cool. Awesome. Awesome. Again, thank you very much, Charlie, for doing this. It's been a super pleasure for both of us. I, I speak for Jody here as well. Uh, <laughs> fun. Do right stories. Out of my mouth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so thanks again, and best of luck, and we look forward to uh, Saw 11 then on the yep. horizon. Yeah. That'll be my summer job is doing Saw 11 this year. Rock uh, on. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and uh, let's do it again, Chapter 2. Absolutely. Sounds like a plan. If you're up for it, let's do it. Sure.
Sure. Awesome. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You'll need to be on our email list in order to be eligible for future giveaways. And we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this amazing podcast. Send us an email at GoldStar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the name Clouser, and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have an awesome day. Thank you, Charlie.